invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We are continuing our way through the text, through the book of Acts. We're resuming our study of Acts here in the new year, 2020. Um, And as we're working our way through the book of Acts, we come to chapter 13, at which point you need to recognize something monumental is happening. There is a trajectory that is shifting. There is an emphasis in the direction of the gospel in terms of taking it to the ends of the earth. And that, that is happening right here in Acts chapter 13. Now, if you know anything about physics, you understand the basic idea of trajectory, you know that it's, it's important. Essentially, trajectory, when we use this word trajectory, we're talking about the physics of some element of mass that is in motion as other certain laws bear upon it, such as the law of gravity and the rotation of the earth. And you're all looking at me, you're like, yeah, okay, trajectory. It's, it's crucially important. Uh, if you're a football fan and you're watching the playoffs later today, one of those games may be decided by a football being kicked through the field goal. That's important, and that's trajectory. That's what we're talking about. A little bit to the right, and you lose the game dead center, and you win the game. If you were one of those individuals, pioneering individuals who settled Canada, oh, about 100 years ago, 200 years ago, if you were making your way into the woods, you were undoubtedly trying to catch your food with a rifle, with a musket, and in that particular instance, trajectory matters to you as you're aiming at that poor deer that you're trying to take home for your dinner. If you're shooting a man to the moon, If you're trying to put someone on the surface of the moon, trajectory matters because one degree off here on Earth, you'll miss the moon by over 100,000 miles. Trajectory matters. And one of the things we understand from trajectory is that the way you launch, the way that you start, seemingly predetermines where you're going to land. How you take off, how you point that rifle, how you initially make contact with that football, all of these things dictate where that projectile is going to land. And it's really no different with you and me. We all started off on a particular trajectory in life. And if it weren't for Christ, we'd still be on that path. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 13, the sage makes the statement, good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. I don't know if you ever look at particular verses in the Bible in multiple translations, but in this particular verse, that word ruin, it's an interesting word in the Hebrew. Comparing it across three different translations, it says the way of the treacherous is their ruin in the ESV. In the New King James, it says the way of the unfaithful is hard. And of course, in the CSB, it says the way of the treacherous never changes. This word talks about a rut, being trapped in a rut. And it's describing sinners, that is you and me, as walking a path, and it's a well-worn path that we have a hard time getting out of. 
As you're driving home later today, your, your wheels are going to go down ruts in the road uh, where you've got snow on either side. And, and if you ever want to experiment, just try to drive out of that rut up onto some of that slush and observe what it does to the vehicle. It is much easier just to stay in the well-worn path that has already been cut in the road by those who've gone ahead of you. And the scriptures describe our spiritual condition as essentially that way. Our path, our trajectory, our way in this world is hard, it is difficult, it is impossible to change. But Christ changed it for us. When we came to trust in the cross, we were empowered by the Holy Spirit to see clearly for the first time all those mistakes, all the sin that we had been engaging in, all the various ways in which we had been rebelling against Christ. And now we no longer rebel against him as he has illuminated that path for us. It is, as it were, that Christ has come alongside, taken our hand, and begun to walk with us. The book of Acts is that story of Jesus walking alongside his church. We start in chapter 1. He promises them that they're going to be his witnesses unto the ends of the earth. We come to chapter 2. He pours out his spirit. They begin proclaiming the gospel to various people, groups, and tribes and ethnicities. They're transcending languages. They're preaching in everyone's own native language. We come all the way through the book, and one of the things we realize is that there are these chance encounters with Gentiles. There is the first mission to Samaria that Philip makes. There are these uh, chance encounters that happen. But here in chapter 13, Christ is about to send his church to the ends of the earth to proclaim his name. The trajectory is being changed from the church staying regional, staying there in Palestine, to now the gospel carried by the missionaries which are being sent out by the church is going to go to the ends of the earth. And all of this is being directed by the Holy Spirit. Notice that this morning. Our trajectory as a church and our trajectory as Christians needs to be directed by the Holy Spirit. Look in Acts chapter 13. This church is getting ready to send these guys out to the ends of the earth. Dale read the passage a moment ago. It says, There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and it lists them, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who is a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and of course it lands on the last name in the list there, Saul. Verse 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and the Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And now chapter 13 is going to detail, the rest of the chapter is going to show us exactly what it is that Barnabas and Saul are going to do. And as we follow them all the way to the end of the book of Acts, we're going to land in the final chapter of Acts with Paul, as he becomes known later on, all the way in Rome. It has gone to the capital city. And indeed, he even has ambitions and plans, as we know from the book of Romans, to go beyond Rome as far west as Spain. All of that starts right here. And if you're just looking at this, it seems incredibly unlikely that this church, with particularly this group of people, would be capable of doing something so monumental as to radically alter the course of history. Just look at these guys. 
I mean, we have a handful of guys, and, and if you just read it through on the surface level, it's like, okay, there's some guys there, they're worshiping the Lord. But if you really take the time to consider who these guys are, it seems highly unlikely, indeed, it doesn't seem possible that this group of individuals could be together in a church worshiping the Lord and even working together, collaborating to send some guys off to the ends of the earth. I want you to just look at these names. First off, we have Barnabas. Now, you know Barnabas. He's been known as the son of encouragement. That's the nickname that's been given to him. He is, uh, as we read about him here in the book of Acts, kind of like that guy that's just always really happy to see you. Uh, Almost, I have it in my mind, almost like a Labrador. You know, a a puppy that just comes up. You come home and just excited to see you and is happy to welcome you. This is Barnabas. Barnabas. This is who we encounter. This is who we've seen in the book of Acts. He's happy. He's joyful. He's encouraging. He's always there to give a positive word, but his heritage would say otherwise. He is, as we know, a Levite. He is from the tribe of Levi. He is of that particular tribe that God assigned to observe religious duties within the nation of Israel. Within the tribe of Levi, you have Aaron, the brother of Moses. And from Aaron, we have the descendants of uh, Aaron who are chosen to be the high priest or the priests of Israel. But within that broader tribe of Levi, of which Aaron comes, we have all the other uh, individuals who labored in uh, ritual observances within the temple. In general terms, all of the Levites would have had religious functions. And though technically they wouldn't all have been priests, they probably would have all served in the temple at some point in time or other. In fact, as we're looking through the book of Luke, we understand that one of the primary characters there in the early chapters, he is actually participating in temple duties by means of lot, by drawing a particular lot. So they they would take turns going and serving in the temple. All of them would have had this responsibility, which is why when we look in Israel, at the nation of Israel, One of the things that was crucially important to them was their lineage, their biological parentage, who they came from, what tribe they were a part of. And as we focus on our lineage and the importance of that lineage, and as we begin to think about the fact that our lineage is God's gift to us, there can be, at times, a creeping sense of arrogance that comes in. Well, I'm of the tribe of Levi. Who are you? Indeed, you might even go so far as to call it a form of racism. The Jews are God's chosen people, and we're the priests, the Levites that serve them. Gentiles, all the rest of the world, they're nobody. Indeed, as we encounter within the Gospels, the priests, Caiaphas and Annas and all of these individuals, it doesn't take long looking at some of their dialogue for you to become aware of this sort of arrogant, condescending superiority, this elitist notion that they have, not only about the nation of Israel being better than all the other nations, but about themselves being better than all the other people around them in Israel. Racism and elitism seem to be the hallmarks of the Levites. And so we encounter Barnabas, and he's not at all elitist. In fact, just the opposite. He's your best friend. What changed that perspective? 
He's not the only Jew mentioned in the group. Obviously, Saul is mentioned as well. He's mentioned last, but Saul, as we all know, is a Pharisee. He'll go on to detail his biographical account in the book of Philippians. He is a Benjaminite trained at the feet of Gamaliel, who is the greatest Pharisee. It was said of Gamaliel that when he died, the light of the Torah went out. This is Saul, Paul's claim to fame that he's not only a Pharisee, but he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, having been trained by the very best. This word Pharisee, it means one who is separated. It may refer to the Pharisees' insistence on being separated from the Gentiles, or it could also be a reference to being separated from sources of ritual impurity or from other irreligious Jews. The Pharisees, among other Jewish sects, where we know that they have been active in the life of Israel from the middle of the second century BC. They were active all the way up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And one of the distinguishing marks of the Pharisees that separates them out from other groups was that they had this belief that all Jews had to observe purity laws all the time, not only when they were within the temple, but at all times they needed to be observing purity laws. And if you're a Pharisee and you are a big fan of the law, you recognize that God has given the law to your nation. And in a manner not at all that different from the Levites, there can creep into that person this mentality that we are God's chosen that this nation with this law, this is the nation that God has chosen to shine as a light to all of the rest of the nations, and therefore we are superior, we are better. Nationalism would have been the calling card of the Pharisees the way that racism might have been the calling card of the Levites. And this is Saul. With this belief from these two different groups, the Levites or the Pharisees, with this kind of belief in divine preference, divine calling, being especially chosen by the Lord, would come a national arrogance that would assume divine backing for whatever policy or program that they might have deemed necessary for propping up the nation. And this is how the idolatry begins. God has called us. God has chosen us. We are the called ones. We are the chosen ones. We need to set our nation aside. We need to undertake certain programs and policies to make sure that we are pure. So whatever we decide to do, obviously God is going to support that. And it becomes more about you enacting your own program rather than following what the Lord has for you. Which makes the other, two, other three individuals in this group even more fascinating. You have these two Jews, and they're in cohorts with, look at this, Simeon, who was called Niger. Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger is from the Latin word meaning black. Essentially, Simeon, who was called black. We don't really know if that was just an interesting nickname that they may have given to him. Most scholars conclude that most likely what is being described here is a black man, probably from Africa, clearly not Jewish. And if there is any doubt about Simeon, there's none about Lucius. Lucius of Cyrene is the next name in the list. Cyrene is in what is present-day Lebanon, northern Africa. And so we can conclude that we have two African men here, two clear Gentiles that are in the mix with two Jews. 
The Jews don't associate with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles, for the most part, don't associate with the Jews because who wants to hang out with a bunch of people who think they're better than you? And here we have these two men who would have come from northern Africa. Their worldview, the way that they perceived the world, would have been totally different from Paul, Saul, or Barnabas. Coming from North Africa, they most certainly would have engaged in some form of religion that would have been akin to spiritualism, having its roots, its heritage, obviously in, in the polytheism of ancient Egypt, almost certainly, but having morphed and mutated, obviously with the rise of, of Hellenism, with the, the conquest of Alexander the Great. We can't be entirely sure what their spirituality was, but it was some form of spiritualism that would have involved the worship of ancestors. They would have believed in northern Africa, something along the lines of the, the world is filled with spirits, both good spirits and bad spirits, and that as you make your way through life, there could be good actors or bad actors unseen that are pulling and pushing on you, and you just don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, and you can't be certain who's out there and who's trying to influence you, and so we need some kind of protection. And they would have turned to ancestors. They would have engaged in cultic ritualistic practices. They would have attempted to appease these various deities, these spirits, these forces that were out there. They could have engaged in activities such as child sacrifice in order to appease them. They would have, could have worshipped perhaps one of the gods of northern Africa at that time known as Moloch. It was believed that if you sacrificed your child to Moloch, he would bless you with economic prosperity, a belief that is not all that different from the abortion movement of today. These men, having engaged in that sort of spirituality, would have surely been abhorred by Jews, especially well-trained Jews like Paul or Saul. But last and certainly not least, we come to a man named Menaean says that he was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. The Greek word there is syntrophos, literally the syntrophos of Herod the Tetrarch. That is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. This word syntrophos may mean that Menaean was brought up with him. That's closest to what it means in a general way, or it may mean more particularly that he was perhaps his foster brother, or perhaps even a childhood playmate, a friend that would have been brought into the palace to play with him. This guy is friends with the son of Herod the Great. The same Herod the Great that brutally murdered most of the members of his family in order to ensure his own dynasty, his own continuing rule on the throne. This guy, Menaean, would have been an intimate member of his court, would have seen all of the actions that Herod partook in, would have known exactly what real politic looked like. He was, as it were, a political animal. You do not last long in Herod's court if you're not prepared to engage in the backstabbing and double dealing that was routine for some place like that where Herod presided. And for sure, the Jews would have looked at him and thought, no way can we trust this guy. He's the kind of guy that if he were to come into our church today, we'd say, welcome, brother. We need you to take three, four, maybe five different criminal background checks. We're going to need you to go after the worship service today to the child safety training downstairs. Meanwhile, all the deacons would have been alerted ahead of time. Like, well, keep your eye on that guy. He may have said something like, hey, what about grace? We believe in grace. 
You just stay there and accept God's grace while we safely remove ourselves to a safe distance. This is a scary man. Of course, I say that he couldn't have been any scarier than Saul in his early career in which he was killing Christians and seeking to lock them up. This is our group. Quite a motley crew, wouldn't you say? And they're going to take Jesus to the end of the earth. Rest on that point for a moment. These guys, with their sordid background, their historical baggage, with all that has transpired in their lives, they have come to recognize that they are one in Christ. It says that they were together. Notice that. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. It lists the, the names. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Look at this, verse 2. While they were worshiping. While they were worshiping. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They're together. What brings them together? It is obviously Christ. It is Christ working in their lives. Working to speak to them, to have a relationship with them. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Notice what it says. Prophets and teachers. Not only were these men of a really colorful background, but these were the leaders of the church, undoubtedly. These were the ones that were given the spiritual gifts of prophecy and teaching. Two gifts which were crucial to the early church at this point in time. Prophecy in particular, because we don't have the New Testament. The canon hasn't been closed. We don't have our Old Testament. We don't have our New Testament. We don't have these nice, neat, leather-bound Bibles that we can look up stuff and read and study. No, the church in its infancy still depended heavily on ongoing direct revelation coming from the Lord. That's what prophecy is. A couple of passages just to draw your attention to this. 1 Corinthians, the Paul, write, Paul writing to the church at Corinth makes a statement in 1 Corinthians 14, let two or three prophets speak and let the others, that is the rest of the church congregation, weigh what is being said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, then let the first be silent. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. This was a spiritual gift that in the absence of a completed canon was still very active in the early church. God speaking to his people. That's the first gift that's mentioned. The second gift that's mentioned is teachers. It says there were prophets and teachers, and then it goes on to list all of these guys. The second gift that is mentioned is teaching. What is the difference then between prophecy and teaching? The difference is that whereas prophecy is speaking forth the word of God, teaching is more concerned with explaining the word of God in such a way that those, are pre those who are present are able to understand it. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, again writing to the church at Ephesus, makes the statement, that Christ, when he ascended on high, led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he goes on to talk about these gifts that he gave. He gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. These teachers are given in order to explain God's revelation in order that you may be fully equipped to do ministry. So when we look at this church in Antioch, we've got a motley crew of men who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit not only to have a direct personal relationship with God such that they are able to prophesy and speak forth the word of God, but they're also concerned with teaching the church from that prophecy in order that that church would be built up and could minister and do the work of ministry. These men are colorful characters, but one thing we know for sure is they recognize that their relationship with Christ called them to a position of service within the body to bless each other. No more are they spiritualists. No more are they trapped in their dark pagan religions. No more are they racists. No more are they nationalists. No more are they political animals in the court of Herod the Great. These men are now humble servants of Christ serving in the church. They have been given this prophecy, this command from the Holy Spirit to go forth to the ends of the earth and specifically to set aside Barnabas and Saul for this task, to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this direction from the Holy Spirit came to them, notice what it says, while they were worshiping. Now, I just want to pause there and camp down on that phrase for just a moment. Over the last 35, 45 years, we have seen within Western evangelicalism what has, what has taken place has been popularly termed the worship wars, where you have individuals who are saying that we need to alter the worship of the church to accommodate the younger generation. And all manner of different uh, innovative types of things are happening in order to achieve that, to create that sound that the younger generation wants to hear. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have the older saints who say these newer songs don't have as much truth in them. The lyrics are not as theologically deep, and uh, therefore they cannot be as edifying. We have these two different sides of the perspective. One saying that the tradition that we have inherited is good. The other side saying, yeah, that's fine, but we want something that sounds more modern. And back and forth, these two sides have argued. And it has gone on and on for the past 25 years. It is still being argued to this very day. Now, church, please don't misunderstand me. I love both the hymns and I also love the more contemporary sound. I think any worship we engage in must be grounded in truth. I think when it comes to the sound that we use, we are obviously not looking to be rock and roll rock stars up here. That is not the point of what we're doing. But I think that if there is a way we can modernize our songs so that it is more effective in reaching the younger generation, I don't have any problems with that. Here's the question that we ought to be asking ourselves. Rather than arguing over the style of worship that we are engaging in, here's the question which ought to haunt us. Does our worship stir us 
in such a way that when I leave this place, I need to tell my neighbors about Jesus Christ. Look at the text again. The church in the first century, there are no sound systems. Praise God. There are no microphones that are humming and hissing and popping and cracking and batteries going dead. Praise God. There are no light shows. There are no projection screens. There's no streaming it out onto the internet, no video recording, none of that. These guys are together in Antioch worshiping. Almost certainly it is pure acapella. I mean, there may have been instrumentation. It could be that there was instrumentation. Most of our evidence from early church history indicates that worship in the first and second century was largely a private affair in a home or worse, in the catacombs, in the sewers, underground, and you can bet whatever else they were dragging with them down into those sewers, they probably weren't taking a lot of instruments, they probably weren't taking, they certainly weren't taking a sound system down there, drums, nothing like that. It was undoubtedly all a cappella. Now, I say all of that to you, and some of you in this room might hear me say that and think, okay, well, he's on a rant about modern musical instruments and that that is not the case I love music I love it the point that I'm making is particularly the younger generation those of you who think you need it to be a certain way notice that the first century church didn't need it that way the question that I want to ask your worship Does it stir you to tell others about Jesus Christ? It says here in chapter 13, verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. This this worship service that they're engaged in it makes the comment that they weren't merely worshiping the Lord, which almost certainly would have been singing songs, hymns, psalms, probably. But they were also engaging in a form of worship that looked like them not eating. There was something going on here, and we'll look at fasting more in depth next week, but there was something going on here in which they were hungering for the Lord. They were worshiping him. They were praising him. And it was in this moment in which they were heartbroken because fasting is when you are heartbroken over something and you are pleading with the Lord to do something. It was while they were in this spiritual frame of mind, worshiping him, being heartbroken before him, that the Holy Spirit came and said, We're about to alter the trajectory of everything. You guys are going to send out Barnabas and Saul. They're going to go to the ends of the earth. My question is, what were they hungering for? What were they thirsting for while they were worshiping? What was going through their minds in this moment? And the scripture tells us here in Acts chapter 13, it it doesn't tell us. We can't know with certainty what they were hungering for, what they were thirsting for, but we do know that Saul is in their midst. 
And we are quite familiar with God's call on his life, going all the way back to Acts chapter 9. He knows it. Undoubtedly, these guys know it. Do you remember? Flip back with me for just a moment to Acts chapter 9. Saul, he's on the road to, uh, to Damascus. He's on the way there. And, uh, and he, you know, he encounters the Lord. He loses his sight. Jump all the way down to verse 15. Ananias Ananias is called to go and to uh, minister to Saul. Ananias is like, no way, that's crazy, he's a bad guy. And the Lord makes this statement in verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is the call of God on Saul's life from the moment that he got saved. This is a number of years later, perhaps 10, 12 years later. He's in Antioch. He's discipling. He's ministering alongside Barnabas. They are hungering. They are heartbroken. And they are worshiping. And I can't help but wonder if perhaps in Saul's mind, he was reflecting on this particular passage from the prophet Isaiah It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the remnant of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. We love Jesus. Jesus came and he had a mission. And his mission was twofold. To die on the cross, to separate us from our sins, to pay the penalty in our place so that we could be forgiven. Jesus' first and most important mission was to go to the cross in our stead. And number two, to proclaim that forgiveness to the ends of the earth. These guys are in Antioch. They are worshiping the Lord. And as they are worshiping him, they are fasting, which is an unmistakable sign of heartbreak, of contrition. And it is in this moment, and I I only speculate, we can't know with any certainty what they were thinking. But it is in this moment that I think their thoughts were on the fact that as they have all been saved, coming from all of these sordid backgrounds of darkness, of hatred, they knew that Christ had saved them. They rejoiced in their new life. They looked out at the rest of the world and they saw where they had come from and the fact that there were so many still trapped in that darkness. It is my belief that their fasting before the Lord was fasting for the Lord to exalt himself in all the earth that their friends, their neighbors, their loved ones and even people they had never met and never knew from thousands of miles away would be able to know what they knew in that moment in that worship service. 
that there was a merciful God who loves his people and died to save them from their sins. We come to church. We worship. And our focus is, well, you know, the pastor told a joke. It was kind of lame. The worship was a little bit off key. I didn't like that song, so I didn't sing it. Notice the focus. The focus is on you. The focus is about what you want. Notice their focus. Oh God in heaven, we know you have prophesied that your name will go to the ends of the earth and it is not happening. And so we are starving ourselves before you because we are heartbroken over this. The focus, whatever else you might want to say, it is not on them. It is on Christ and the rest of the world. Is that our worship service? You say, I hear you, Pastor Josh, and I'm feeling the conviction right now. What do we need to do? There are three commands in the scripture that we need to be particularly mindful of. Number one, don't grieve the Holy Spirit from Ephesians chapter four. Our lives are not our own. That's the mistake we always make. And we tend to justify all manner of actions and behavior by saying to ourselves, this is more convenient. I'm just gonna do it this way. And we know it's wrong. We know it's sinful. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we disobey him. So number one, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Number two, from 1 Thessalonians, second commandment regarding the Holy Spirit, don't quench the Holy Spirit. If God is trying to speak into your heart, if he's trying to speak to you about an issue that you need to address, perhaps a neighbor you need to be sharing the gospel with, perhaps a behavior or something you're engaged in that you need to let go of, if you continuously ignore that nudging and that prompting from the Holy Spirit, the scriptures say there comes a moment in time in which the Holy Spirit is quenched. He will not continuously keep trying to nudge you. So commandment number one, don't grieve him. And commandment number two, don't keep grieving him to the point that you quench him and his activity in your life. Which brings us to the third commandment. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be constantly pursuing the filling of the Holy Spirit. And however you look at each of these verses in in their respective contexts, this same truth emerges all the time. We are to keep in step with what the Spirit is doing. That has to do with our behavior. That has to do with our thoughts. That has to do with our emotions. That has to do with our witness to the world. At every point along the way, if we are walking with the Holy Spirit, One thing we know, the Holy Spirit longs to exalt Jesus Christ, which means that if we're walking with him, we will also long to exalt Jesus Christ. You have here in this church prophets and teachers, and undoubtedly, one of the very best, Saul. I mean, this church probably loved Saul. 
I read the letters that he has written this very day, and I think, my goodness, it's confusing and deep and wonderful. It's obviously inspired by the Spirit. I just want to pick this man's brain. Do you think that if the Holy Spirit said to any church that I might have been a part of in which my most favorite, most beloved pastor was then called by God to go out to another country that I'd be on board with that? No, I don't want Saul to go. Send Manan. Send that guy from the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Send him. He can go. It just reinforces the point. Their focus wasn't on themselves. It was on reaching the nations. My encouragement to you this morning, church, as we worship, don't focus on yourself. Focus on Christ. And if you're worshiping properly, you will tell others about Christ. He will become that treasure for you. How do you know this? John chapter four. And I just close with this this morning. Jesus encounters a woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. She comes at the high noon to get her water, worst time of the day to look, get her water. She's obviously avoiding the crowds. She's obviously ashamed, embarrassed. Jesus encounters her. They have this discussion. She recognizes that he's something of a prophet. And she begins to ask him theological questions. You Jews say that we have to worship in Jerusalem. But my ancestors say that we can worship here on this particular mountain. To which Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, the hour is coming and is now here when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. The hour is coming and is now here when those who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such as these. And as she is talking to him, he exposes her sin to her. He tells her that he knows that she's been married to multiple husbands, multiple husbands, and this, the one that she has now is not her husband. They engage in this discussion. And she comes to the point in which she says, I know that when Christ comes, he will show us everything. And Jesus says, I am he. And what was her response? Really, you could have led with that. I don't like the way we engaged in this dialogue. You could have put this scripture reading here. You could have had this song sung here. It wasn't her response. Having encountered Christ, she immediately went back to the town where she was from. And she said, come see a man who knows everything about me. As we leave here, we will know that we have worshiped the Lord when our heart is to say to our neighbors and our friends, come meet Jesus. Pray with me, church. Father in heaven, we say thank you for your word to us. We say thank you, God, for the way that you altered the trajectory of the church in Antioch. Father, this morning, as we are worshiping you, God, we know that you use worship to teach us. We know that you use worship to edify us. But Father, we know that above all else, 
Worship is where we praise you because you are beautiful. We thank you, Lord, that you do use worship to change our lives, but ultimately worship is not about changing our lives. It is about praising and glorifying you. My prayer, Father, for those who are here this morning, that they would see you as you truly are, that they would worship you for all that you are, that they would be so moved by you that they couldn't help but tell others about you. We pray, God, that you would work in our hearts this morning through worship to glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.